A little word of explanation. You can be turning to Esther chapter 1 if you want to. Esther chapter 1. For those of you who are visiting with us today, let me tell you a little bit, of, I'm, and we're still ringing, brother, a, a little bit about uh, our processes and how we do things here. Uh, we are Friendship Bible Church, and we therefore believe in teaching the Bible. That's all we want to teach. And so our primary way of doing that is that we teach through books of the Bible. We don't always do that. The last couple of weeks we've done just a couple of topical things, but we normally try to preach through books. And this morning I want to start a short series. Our last series was quite protracted and long, but this one is going to be a shorter series on the book of Esther. And as I think about now what we're doing here this morning, and I think about baptism, I'm not quite sure why the Lord led me to this today, because this is really a very strange, weird message today. If you know your Bible and if you know what takes place in Esther chapter 1, you're wondering how in the world are we going to tie this into baptism, and we're not going to. There's just no tying it into baptism. It's just going to be the message, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about baptism at the end. But I want you to understand that if you're visiting here today, that we just believe in teaching through the Bible. And so we're starting something new today. The first, the first uh, sermon in the series is usually somewhat introductory of the whole book. And so that's where we're going to be today, kind of talking about the book of Esther and uh, kind of the theme of the whole book. And then we'll start getting into it over the next couple of weeks as well. So let's begin reading. If you've got your Bibles, Esther chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. And uh, the same version that I'm reading from here today, you can follow along. We'll read all of chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Karkas. Are you impressed? Seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being 
Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who had ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Memucan answered before the king and the princes. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Father God, we just pray now that as we look at your word, and Father, this is your word, and we're thankful for it, even though this seems a very strange and odd passage from Scripture. I pray today, Father, you'd speak to us from it. And Lord, as we think about the truth that's contained herein, I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit applies it to each of our hearts. May we be encouraged as we think about these things. And we'll thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Esther is a very unique and interesting part of the Old Testament. And so I want to begin our scriptures, as I mentioned a minute ago, or our studies, as I mentioned a minute ago, with just a little bit of background about what's taking place here. First of all, let's determine where does the book of Esther fit in the Bible. The book of Esther is one of the 12 historical books that we have in our Old Testament. Twelve books in the Protestant canon of the Old Testament are commonly referred to as historical. They are Joshua, Judges, Ruth. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All of them are historical. They cover a whole long period in the history of, uh, uh, of the children of Israel, from, from uh, Israel's entry into the land of Canaan as a nation, which is described in the book of Joshua, and the, the chaotic period under the judges when it was every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's mentioned in Judges and Ruth. And then David's rise and David's kingdom in First and Second Samuel and, and also in First Chronicles. And then the history of all the other kings of Israel and Judah is mentioned in... Uh, First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles. And then finally, Israel's exile in another land when they were carried away captive into Babylon and Assyria. And then what happened after that. And those are the things that are mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah and also Esther. And so Esther is talking about that period of time, something that took place during that period of time when they had been carried away captive and now they were... Uh, Returning to the land. Who wrote the book? Well, as with all of the Old Testament historical books, we don't know. Actually, we don't know who wrote any of those. We have some thoughts about them, but 
Uh, all of the 12 historical books are basically anonymous. There is, there is some thought about this one. Uh, it was somebody who understood the Persian culture very, very well. The things that are described herein about that culture are, are very accurate and attested to by other sources as well. It's also somebody who probably was a Jew because he seemed to understand or she seemed to understand uh, the Jewish culture as well. It takes place in the Persian period, between, which was between 539 and 331 B.C., again, after many Jews had returned from the exile back to Palestine. In Ezra, we know that they, were, they had returned, a group of them had returned under Ezra, and they had rebuilt the temple. And uh, in Nehemiah, we studied Nehemiah a while back, we know that the group of them returned under Nehemiah and were, were rebuilding the wall. Actually, if we think about this particular book, we believe that it took place right between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. If you go and you study that in your Bible and read Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7, Esther fits right in between those two chapters. There are some interesting characters in this book, and we're going to be introduced to them progressively as we go through the book. Uh, There's Ahasuerus, the powerful king, known in other sources and in other uh, places in history as Xerxes. There is Vashti, and we met both of them in in chapter 1 here, Vashti, the humbled queen. When we get to the next chapter, we'll we'll meet Mordecai, the Jew, who's pretty much one of the stars of the book. Mordecai is his Babylonian name. He was not given a Hebrew name, or at least it's not mentioned, and that's interesting. Most of the Jews who were carried away in the exile had both a Babylonian name and a Hebrew name. For some reason, Mordecai's Hebrew name was not given. There we will meet Esther, the beautiful and brave heroine. And again, that's her Babylonian name, Esther. Her Hebrew name is given. She was Hadassah, was her Hebrew name. And then finally we'll meet Haman, the scheming and evil arch enemy of the Jews. All kinds of interesting characters. What is the historical significance to us today? Well, if we were Jewish, there would be much more historical significance than there is to us as Christians. But it does answer a question. The Jews have a feast of Purim every year that they observe. And when we get to the end of the book, we'll find out that this is where that came from. That feast of Purim celebrates their deliverance uh, from Haman and his evil, uh, which we'll learn about when we get there. But it's the spiritual significance of the book that I find interesting. What is the spiritual significance? And it really does get very unusual and interesting as we think about that. You see, there are several things about this book, and I'm going to narrow it down to two, but two two specific things that I think make the book spiritually interesting. The first is this. God is not mentioned in this book. Now, if you're holding any kind of a study Bible in front of you right now, that's probably the very first, first thing it says. That's the first thing anybody ever says about the book of Esther. God is not mentioned. He does not appear anywhere in the book of Esther. His name is not mentioned. His worship is not mentioned. There is no mention of God. And so interesting is this to some people that some have actually questioned whether or not it ought to be included in the canon as a result of that. Should it really be in our Bibles? Now, of course, I think it should. I believe the Bible, all 66 books, is all inspired by God. You know that. But there are those, perhaps more liberal scholars, who have wondered about that. One man writes, the right of the book to a place in the Scripture canon has been greatly disputed. The name of God does not appear in it, while a heathen king is referred to over 150 times. There is no allusion to prayer or spiritual service of any kind, with the possible exception of fasting. 
Another person says this, Esther is the only book of the Bible in which the name of God is not mentioned. The New Testament does not quote from the book of Esther, nor have copies of it been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The law is never mentioned in the book, nor are sacrifices or offerings referred to. Prayer is never mentioned in the book, though fasting is. And so the first question that we have to ask ourselves is, where is God? Where is God? Because he does not appear, uh, at least by name, in the book. And the second thing that I think is interesting is that the Jewish heroes here, and that would be Mordecai and Esther, they don't seem to worship God. They don't seem to have any interest in God. As already noted, there's no, there's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of spiritual worship of ever, of any kind. Mordecai, never seen praying. Esther, who many people will hold up as a, as a heroine of, uh, of spiritual women, uh, somebody that women ought to emulate, and in some way she is, but uh, there's no indication ever of her praying or in any way worshiping God. I find that fascinating. And that, plus the fact that these two remained behind when so many other uh, sp- more spiritually-minded Jews were heading back to Palestine to help restore the temple and rebuild the wall and all those things, they stayed behind. They didn't seem to have much interest in that, it just seems to indicate that they had little interest in spiritual things. If these two were worshipers of Jehovah, they were marginal at best. We might say they were Sunday morning only believers. If that, maybe they were Easter Sunday only believers. Marginal at best. And so two things. God is not mentioned in the narrative, nor is he apparently an important part of the lives of the main characters. And yet, this is vitally important God is not missing. He is not missing. G. Campbell Morgan said, while there is no name of God and no mention of the Hebrew religion anywhere, no one reads this book without being conscious of God. And Warren Wiersbe adds, though God is not named in the book, he is present. He is active. He was not hiding. He was only hidden. And even though the main characters don't seem to have much interest in God, this is one thing that I think is fascinating. God chooses to use them anyway. God chooses to use them anyway. And there's encouragement to me. I don't know if there is to you, but there's encouragement to me in the realization that God works in our lives even when we're only marginally faithful to him. So actually, as we go through this book, I think we're going to become increasingly aware of two amazing truths about the God who's not even mentioned herein. The first is his sovereignty over the affairs of men. We're going to see that over and over and over. And the second is his amazing love and grace toward his people. Esther is a wonderful reminder of the truth of Romans 8.28, that we know all things work together for good to, to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's also a beautiful display of, of his love and grace as described in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for those who were seriously seeking him. He died for the marginally believing. He died for those who had very little time for him. He died for those who didn't have much spiritual insight at all. And I think as we think about these things, they help us to understand the theme of the book. And it is this. Well, this is how I would say it anyway. God is there, whether he is seen or worshipped, guiding and protecting his people and assuring retribution over their enemies. I think that's the theme. God is there, whether 
or not he is seen or worshipped, guiding and protecting his people. So for just a few minutes this morning, and I don't want to spend a lot of time, there's really no way I can spend a lot of time on this weird chapter. There's so much strangeness in here. But I want to just take a couple minutes and look at what happened in the first chapter of Esther. The first thing is there was a feast. There was a feast. This is described in verses 1 through 9. And that feast actually took place in two phases. And it was a total of 187 days. Anybody ever been to a feast that was 187 days in length? That's a lot of feasting. That's a lot of drinking. That's a lot of revelry. The first feast lasted for 180 days, and it was uh, mentioned in verses 3 through 4. That was for Ahasuerus' military, Ahasuerus' leaders and, and, and all of the people of rank in his kingdom. And interestingly, history tells us that from 480 to 479 B.C., this same king attempted an invasion of Greece. It was an ill-advised invasion, and he did not succeed. It did not go well for him. But some have concluded that this feast was probably the planning session for that forthcoming invasion and uh, military campaign. But after that 180-day feast concluded for just all of his military leaders, there was another seven days of feasting mentioned in verse 5, and he opened the doors and the gates there and let everybody come in. That was a feast for everybody who was there. And uh, at the same time, during probably during that second shorter one, according to verse number 9, Queen Vashti uh, had a host, hosted a feast for just the women. Uh, because we learned from, from uh, other sources that the culture of the day, the men and the women, did not mingle together in a public setting. There was an opulent display of wealth throughout the feast. We see that in verses 6 through 7. There was an overabundance of wine that flowed throughout the, the festivities, verses 7 through 8. There was a law in Persian at that, in Persia at that time that when the king drank, everybody drank. Every time they saw him lift his glass, everybody else had to lift their glass. But apparently, there's a verse here, verse number 8, which seems to imply that law was suspended for this particular day. I don't know. That, that may be how you interpret that verse. Uh, that verse could also just simply be interpreted to mean that the wine flowed freely and the king was liberal with it. And as I mentioned, most historical sources indicate the men and the women did not mingle together in these types of things. And so that might explain why Vashti had a separate feast for the women. So if we think about those two realities, the overabundance of wine and the separation of the sexes in that society, it might help us to understand what's going to come into play in the very next scene. Because there was a feast, and then the second thing is, verses 10 through 12, there was a disobeyed command. Now you, you heard me read it. You saw, you saw what's taking place here. The king asks Vashti to come, commands Vashti to come and be displayed for all those that are there. I came across an interesting comment concerning this whole section, because as I, as I looked at this, I believe the Lord wants us to look at, at the book of Esther, and I, I believe that this study is where he wants us to go over the next few weeks. But as I looked at chapter 1, I thought, how in the world do you preach on this? This is horrible. What am I supposed to do with this? And I came across this, this statement concerning verses 10 through 22. It says, it is this narrative full of ludicrous decisions that sets up the events of the rest of the book. And I thought that was a very good description. Ludicrous decisions. And the first of those ludicrous decisions is seen in verses 10 through 12, where the king commands that the queen come and show her beauty to all the men with him. Of course, the reason for the king's stupid command is quite clear, isn't it? It's the same reason many people might give for stupid things that they've done 
in their life, he was intoxicated. He was inebriated. He was drunk. He was under the influence. Three sheets to the wind. He was plastered. He was all of those things. Hammered, sloshed, pie-eyed, tipsy. That's what he was. Of course, the Bible uses a much milder term, doesn't it, in verse number 10? It describes the fact that the heart of the king was merry with wine. That's a nicer way to say it, isn't it? He was drunk. And this might be a real good place for us to pause for a second and remind ourselves that drunkenness and stupidity almost always go hand in hand, certainly in Scripture. It was after they were well drunk that the Philistine lords invited Samson to come and entertain them, resulting in his final victory over them and their complete and total annihilation, Judges 16.25. Proverbs reminds us over and over of the danger of drink. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. I like the understatement of that. We could state that in another way. Whoever is... uh, Whoever is led astray by it is stupid, would be another way to put that. Proverbs twenty-one seventeen: he who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Proverbs 31, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. But here we have a king who drank wine for 187 days, and he was a little bit sloshed. Now, it may be a minor application of the text, I don't know, but I think it's a valid one. Had the king been careful in this area of his life, he might not have acted as stupidly as he did in the remaining verses. But he didn't avoid the wine. He drank enough of it to cloud his senses and deprive him of whatever vestige of wisdom and decency he had, common sense he might have had, and he commanded that his queen be brought before these people. Vashti was to be displayed because, according to verse number 11, she was beautiful to behold. And the king's summons was dutifully obeyed by his seven eunuchs, verses 10 and 12. They carried it to Vashti. Vashti. She listened to it, and she promptly refused. Now, I like to try to visualize these kind of things. Do you ever do that as you're reading the Bible? Do you just try to visualize what this might have looked like? And I'm kind of weird. I, I, I put strange, strange images to this kind of stuff. But as I try to imagine this case, here's what I imagine. I imagine the king standing before all these people. No doubt a very large crowd. I imagine him swaying slightly. Because isn't that what drunks usually do? Swaying maybe just a little bit. I I imagine him perhaps even slurring his words a little bit as he sent off his seven eunuchs, commanding them, and probably loudly, to go and get the queen. I imagine that the anticipation of the crowd grew with each passing moment as these seven men had disappeared and as they waited for them to come back, accompanied by the queen, whose beauty would soon be on display for all to see. And I imagine there was a very noticeable silence When the men returned, and as everybody strained to hear what they said to the king, and they heard one of these guys whisper in the king's ear, she said no. Such a thing was just not done. It was just not done. Every eye and ear would now be trained on the king, because this was not done. What is the king going to do? One commentator suggests that it is scarcely possible for us to imagine the astonishment produced by such a refusal in a country and a court where the will of the sovereign was absolute. 
the assembled grandees were petrified with horror at the daring affront. Now, we're not told why Vashti refused the command. There's been all kinds of suggestions, but the Bible just simply doesn't tell us. Some have suggested that the command to bring her before the king wearing her royal crown, verse number 11, actually meant that she was to be displayed wearing only her royal crown, and that might explain her refusal. Other historical references seem to indicate that at this particular time, uh, Vashti would have been pregnant with Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son. And uh, therefore, perhaps she did not want to come. But all those are just conjecture. We don't know. All we know is she said no. So there was a feast. There was a disobeyed command. And the last thing I want us to notice just briefly, and I'm not even going to go into detail on this, verses 13 through 22, there was a stupid response. There was a stupid response. I can't begin to explain the reasoning of what was taking place in these last verses here. From verses 13 to 22, there seemed to be an ever-increasing level of stupid ideas and decisions. Vashti was deposed as queen. Verse number 19, she was never to come into the presence of the king again. It was written in the inviolable Persian law that she could never come again. And then letters were sent throughout the land to try to encourage and ensure other women that they didn't follow in Vashti's example of insubordination. Now, one thing that we have to always remember, and one thing that we tend to forget, is that when the Bible reports historical facts, it doesn't mean that it's condoning them. It's simply saying that they happened. I don't think there's anything in this passage, excuse me, this passage of Scripture that would indicate that, the, that God is condoning the things described here. They just happened. And they were stupid. How many times have I used stupid in this sermon? They were stupid. I just don't think there's much here that can be condoned. I see no evidence of the king acting wisely or decently. I see no evidence that his supposedly intelligent counselors gave him even marginally good advice. I see no evidence that the decisions made or the decrees issued were in any way good and right. I think it's quite opposite. I think the Bible is describing something here that was wrong. I do think he acted stupidly. I think his counselors did so as well. And the result was an ill-advised decree that took Vashti away from the king forever. And we're going to get to chapter 2, Lord willing, next week. And we're going to see right off the bat that he came to regret that decision. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves as we think about all of this. Where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this nonsense? There's no mention of him in any of these events. Was he there? Was he working? Can God work even through such nonsense as what we see there? Where's God? Turn with me over to chapter 2 and verse 17, and let me just read one verse there to you. Chapter 2 and verse number 17. And we'll get to this, Lord willing, in a week or two. Chapter 2, verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. In this next chapter, we're going to be introduced to Esther, Hadassah. And we're going to learn how she became queen, taking Vashti's place. Then we're going to get to chapter 3. And when we get to chapter 3, we're going to learn of a terrible threat to the Jewish people. The Jewish people have had some pretty bad threats down through their history. I heard one person say one time that one of the greatest evidences of the reality of the Bible and the truth of the Bible is that simple word, Jew. Because you think about all that has been prophesied and all that has happened to them. But here was another example, chapter 3, this 
threat to the Jewish people, which would have meant their complete extermination as a people. And then we're going to come to chapter 4, and we're going to find out how they were delivered from that. And how they were delivered from that was because of Queen Esther, who was there to deliver. So Esther would not have been in a position to save her people if she had not been queen. There would have been no Queen Esther. And if there weren't first a removal of Queen Vashti, there would have never been a Queen Esther. God's sovereignty over the affairs of men is seen even in the stupid decisions of Ahasuerus and the humbling removal of Vashti. God was there even if not seen nor worshipped. He was guiding. He was protecting his people. And he was assuring protection from their enemies. Does that encourage you? It encourages me. It encourages me because of the fact that God works behind the scenes. God will accomplish his will no matter what we see. No matter what's going on around us. No matter whether or not his name is mentioned. No matter whether or not anybody else seems to be acknowledging him. God's sovereignty over the affairs of men remains true. When the world's leaders appear to be completely without sense. And how many would say amen? The world's leaders appear to be completely without sense. God is still there. He is still sovereign. He is still working. When we make stupid decisions in our own lives that we think are disastrous, that we think might have ruined us, God is still there working in and through and for us. When we are the victims of stupid decisions that others make, and certainly that is the case sometimes, he is still there working for our good in spite of what others might do. When we feel like he might have abandoned us, as no doubt many who were, in, who were in Babylon at this time, in Persia at this time, many of the exiles who were still there, no doubt felt like they had been abandoned by God, but he's done no such thing. Seen or unseen, he is there, working all things together for good to them that love God, protecting and preserving and helping his people. As the songwriter said, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Well, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this. I pray that this short introduction to the book is helpful. And I pray now as we move into another more exciting part of our, of our service today, I pray that you'll bless there as well. And as we think about these things, I pray, Father, as, uh, if there's anybody here who is struggling with any of these issues and maybe wondering, has, uh, it, where is God? I pray they're encouraged by what, uh, what we learn here from Esther. May we never forget, Lord, that no matter what we see, no matter what we hear, no matter what appears to be the case in the world around us, in our own personal lives, uh, God is there. He's never left. He never will. He is sovereign over our affairs and over the affairs of men. And we're thankful. When we're tempted to ask, where is God? May we always remember, he's right there. Bless as we sing, bless as we prepare for baptism, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.